Our second scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let us listen for God's word to us today. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now that in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray, friends. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Do your work in this place, O Lord, in our hearts, behind our eyes, within our ears. Do your work upon us, O Spirit divine, O heavenly dove, that we will see with eyes set on freedom, with hearts renewed in your grace. Amen. This story is all out of sorts. Just as the woman who stands in its midst certainly was, and the religious leaders who have positioned her there. If you have looked at it in the Pew Bible, you might have seen that it is marked on either side with brackets, denoting that the very placement of this story is of question. This is one of those few and scattered about, including the second so-called longer ending of Mark's gospel, where there's not quite unanimity on whether this should even be here. Notations down below or set aside indicate dissenting views. Some ancestors of the faith include it, some do not. In the case of the reading today, some ancient traditions place it where we found it here. Others place it in a different part of John's gospel. And still some think it's more appropriate to the gospel of Luke. The consensus, though, 
is that it was established enough in the Jesus tradition that it should be included. That is to say, this story tells us something about Jesus that needs not be overlooked. Actually, I think that may be the point of it, really, of this little interaction that is wedged between ever more aggressive questions by community and leaders alike, all curious and some fearful of the authority that Jesus seems confident to claim. The point, I think, is to stop, or at least to slow down and to pay attention. I cannot begin to add up the number of days, summer days, that I spent in part or in whole roaming around the nooks and crannies of my home church. There were a lot of rooms in that downtown church, so fortunately, there was a lot of space to explore. My favorite was the supply room with paper and markers and ribbons and glitter and puppets and pipe cleaners and popsicle sticks, everything a little kid needed to create. My least favorite was the stew pot, which in those years was located, in those early years, was located in the basement of the church. The stew pot is a feeding ministry for our unhoused neighbors. And then it was dark, and it always had a distinctive smell that seemed to hover particularly in the elevator that was used to access it, wherein the hot food that was prepared each lunchtime in the church kitchen was ferried down to the guests down below. Even when I grew a bit older and the church had purchased the adjacent property to expand their community ministries, creating, thankfully, a much brighter, warmer, more welcoming, and well-utilized space. Still, that scent lingered for years. But by that point, I was old enough to expand my roaming and walk the few blocks to the main library. Other than the stray office worker walking briskly by, the only others out and about in downtown Dallas in the 80s and 90s were those unhoused neighbors who gathered now just across the street. Sometimes they were loudly carrying on, other times sleeping across a grate. Sometimes they sat with a cup held out, other times with a distant look on their face. We talked about it in Sunday school. God loved them and the church was doing good by helping them. But I'd learned by example when I walked to the library, I kept my head down. I walked quickly. I didn't look too hard or too long because I didn't want to invite an interaction. Fortunately, true church doesn't just talk about things or such things in Sunday school. And for VBS or as part of youth group, we would regularly venture over and across the street to the community ministries building. Oftentimes to serve food, placing a roll <clears throat> on a tray as it passed by or refilling water and lemonade at tables. Sometimes we would help to distribute the mail or visit the dental clinic to organize supplies. One time we hosted a Christmas party and then one time 
we were invited to wash feet. If we recall, it's later in John's Gospel that Jesus does this with his friends. It's after he's disarmed with a few words the scribes and the Pharisees, bent on seeing a woman purely as chattel to make their point. After he saw with the eyes of grace that same woman still standing there and having saved her life once, offered her a chance at a new beginning. After the many interactions and arguments and discursive sermons, just hours away from execution, Jesus got up from a shared table, towel in hand, and despite Peter's objections, he proceeded to wash the feet of his friends, proclaiming his love with every stroke and saying, now it is your turn. You have learned by example. Here, theologian Shirley Guthrie reminds us that it is not our understanding of love that defines God, but God's interaction or God's action toward us that defines what real love is. I don't know if you have had the opportunity, but washing the feet of another person, you can't help but see them. Even if only for a short time, the bruises and the bumps, the ticklish spots on their feet, the days, weeks, and months of crusted dirt, you see soft eyes on hard-worn faces. You notice fingernails painted in a happy shade of pink. Have a quick chat about how the lemonade was too strong that day, but the rolls were good. That first time, and every time since, within the ritual of foot washing, I find time slows just a little bit. It's vulnerable time. It's exposing, almost too exposing for some. But the Spirit transformed my gaze that day with grace and truth beyond my own ability to do it and gave me eyes to see the human being that sat before me for who they were, God's own, just like me. And ever since, I cannot unsee this. The gospel compels us to see the truth of God in one another and to love one another. I think I just, ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> and to love one another with all that we see and despite what we carry with that. In God's eternally patient and unceasingly urgent work of moving stubborn people and creation from bondage to freedom, these moments of slowing us down enough to see who stands before us are everywhere. And each time we take the hint and we do it, we see a bit more of ourselves in the process. And we find that God is transforming us both inside and out. We see Abraham who invited three strangers to join him for tea and by offering this hospitality learns that he and Sarah will be the bearers of nations. 
Moses, whose eye catches the flicker of a bush and stops long enough to take the invitation to take off his shoes, for it turns out he was standing on holy ground. Jacob, who stuck with the struggle all night, demanding to receive a blessing by morning. And once he did, better still, reconciliation with his brother. Mary, who slowed to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha, who, in or perhaps despite her grief, saw him for who he was and called him Lord. The hemorrhaging woman who touched the hem of his cloak and stopped him in his tracks. The Syrophoenician woman who confronted Jesus with his own short-sightedness and was then, only then said to have faith. The Pharisees, the scribes, the crowd waiting in the wings to see would he pass or would he fail this test, that woman and Jesus. We don't know if when they gathered they already had stones in hand or if they had picked some up as they positioned her within a stone's throw. We do know that the gaggle of religious leaders who stormed up to Jesus in the temple, no less, amid all the trappings of holy righteousness and right of way, they dragged with them a woman who behaved against the law of Moses. And Jesus, they assume, claimed himself to be a learned man, a man tied to God in some way, that they were all still trying to parse out a teacher, as they called him, no less. So how could he claim ignorance to the truth of this situation? It's in these moments, though, when we think we have God right where we want her, back up against the wall, surrounded. In the situations where we hold, think that we hold firmly to the right of righteousness, it's here that God works their hardest to slow us down and to urge us to look again. In this case, Jesus did so by bending down. We could ask what he was writing in the dirt as he played with his fingers there, but I'm not sure that's quite the point. He bent low once while they awaited his answer and pestered him more with questions, and he gave them space to see her standing there before them. The woman they had brought, they had used as their tool, the adulteress, conspicuously alone, I might add, curiously enough, as they think, I think they all knew that it takes two. The woman, they had stood before them all, and Jesus silently made way for their eyes to adjust to her. Just her. Not her crime. Not their agenda. To her. After a moment, he stood up and this time asked them to be honest for once, and back down he went. Maybe it was a few moments of silence that followed. Perhaps there were more questions and heated arguments. But then one by one, thump, thump, thump. The stones they were holding dropped. Or at the very least, their pretension. From the eldest on down, it says, one taking example of the other before convicted 
and eyes focused at least for that moment, they walked away. It is and has always been easy to pick up stones, to hurl accusations, to make assumptions of one another based on what threatens us within, easier to lower our heads and walk past, easier to ignore our complicity and highlight their faults, easier to lift law over love. But Jesus witnesses to us what it means to love with a perfect love, coming not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to give the grace of new life extended once and twice as many times as needed to get through our fog and our fear and to settle our hearts to take root. Jesus works to renew a right spirit within us, that when given the chance, whether by basin and warm water or the many other ways we find proximity to one another, we might allow ourselves to be transformed, not only in our seeing, but for our living. One of the hopes, one of my most fervent prayers as we move ever closer to the opening of First Place Swarthmore providing housing for refugees newly settled in our area, is that in the experience of it, we might all be transformed. Those who receive our hospitality and we who give it. Those who observe and those who jump right in. In small and in large ways, I pray that our hearts will be opened and deepened and knit together that we would be challenged by the assumptions that we make and vulnerable to slow down and to notice as that happens. For I believe in the depth of my heart, friends, that the gospel compels us to consider one another with God's eyes so that we can be drawn into repair and reconciliation already underway. That which we yearn for and that which we have a hand in bringing about. As we continue to spend time reflecting on the whys of our own faith, you will find a card in the basket on your pew, and you are invited to use this as you reflect. We invite those worshiping online to find paper nearby. We are calling this a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to Scripture and the word proclaimed. You will be invited, but you don't have to place it in the offering plate as it comes by later as a form of your offering before God. So I invite you to be open to the spirits moving within you and consider for a few quiet moments this question. Why does the gospel compel you to keep coming back 